0: coffee and philosophy with Emily. On today's episode, we'll be discussing surrogacy and attempting to answer the question of, is surrogacy morally acceptable? To try to formulate an answer to this question, we'll be using the philosophers Laura M. Purdy and Elizabeth S. Anderson's stances on the topic of surrogacy and make their positions clear so that listeners can use this information to distill their own opinion of surrogacy as there is not one universal answer to this question. Before we begin, I would like to discuss some terms that I'll be using throughout the podcast and also some terms that are good to understand when discussing surrogacy. These terms are full surrogacy, straight or traditional surrogacy, infertility, non-traditional families, and commodity. A full surrogacy is when a fertilized egg is planted into another woman's uterus. A straight or traditional surrogacy is when the gestational mother is artificially inseminated with the sperm of an intended father. Infertility is defined as not being able to become pregnant, despite frequent unprotected sex for one year. A non-traditional family is one that is different from what is considered to be a traditional family, which is one father, one mother, and one or more children. A non-traditional family can look different for everyone, and it can include, but is not limited to, same-sex couples, polygamous relationships, adopted children, single parents, and many more variations. The last term that I want to define is commodity. It's not often that we would think of surrogacy and commodity being used together, but it will come up in today's discussion. A commodity is defined as a product that can be bought and sold. We will begin with Laura Purdy. Purdy begins her discussion of surrogacy, quoting Sholemuth Firestone, saying that pregnancy is barbaric, and that Firestone argued, and I quote, nature oppresses women by leaving them holding the reproductive bag, While men are free from such burden, so long as this biological inequity holds, women will never be free. However, Purdy does recognize in the text that, that there is a disconnect between Firestone's claim and the reality of reproduction. Purdy says that it is, and I quote, it is not the biological difference per se that oppresses women, but it's the social significance. So We need not change biology, only attitudes and institutions. I think that it is great that Purdy acknowledges this, this disconnect between the bold feminist perspective of Firestone, and explained the more approachable and realistic way to approach creating equality amongst men and women, while there is such an unchanging difference between the two sexes and their abilities to procreate. The reason Purdy includes Firestone's claims and arguments is because they are so strong and bold, such strong and bold statements that catch a reader's attention. These statements are also included because readers may be turned off by Firestone statements, but because Purdy lays out a more appro- reasonable approach, this will keep the reader's attention, which sets up her argument for pro-surrogacy. Purdy outlines three reasons for pro-surrogacy, and they are as follows. One, it alleviates infertility. Two, it minimizes risk for mother and child. And three. It creates reproductive possibilities for non-traditional families. Purdy Purdy is faced with some anti-surrogacy objections and they are that one, there's a transfer of burden and risk, two, surrogacy creates separation of sex and reproduction, three, surrogacy creates separation between reproduction and child rearing, and lastly four, surrogacy is selling babies. I'll discuss each of these objections further and the response that Purdy gives. The first objection is that the use of surrogacy transfers the burden and risk of pregnancy from one person to another. The reasons as to why this is considered dangerous is because it may be wrong to ask someone to do something that is potentially dangerous to themselves and their health. Purdy responds with, quote, doing this is supererogatory, for pregnancy can threaten comfort, health, even life. Before we break down this response and continue outlining her response, I want to define supererogatory. Supererogatory means to perform or do a task that is more than asked for, the action of doing more than the duty requires. It basically means to complete an action or task that is good, but is not morally required to be done. Purdy continues and says that, quote, one might argue that women should not be allowed to take these risks, but that would be paternalistic. Purdy also says that perhaps the central issue at hand is that there is a transfer of burden and risk. However, Purdy says that, quote, we frequently do just that more and more often than we recognize. If you were to break down Purdy's response, she makes three claims. One, that surrogacy is supererogatory, two, preventing women from taking these risks is paternalistic, and three, the transfer of burden and risk is common practice. I think Purdy's first claim of surrogacy being supererogatory is right. Surrogacy does ask a person to go beyond the call of duty, most especially if this person is a friend or family member, but no one is forced into pregnancy for another as there is choice in the matter. In addition to this, oftentimes when we use a surrogate, couples who or those seeking to use surrogacy do not ask a close relative or friend to be their surrogate. They often choose a surrogate agency, which provides a woman who is interested in being a gestational mother for others. I think that the use of surrogacy agency even further emphasizes Purdy's point that surrogacy is super as the women participating in being a surrogate express interest on their own fruition. The second part of Purdy's claim is that to prevent women from taking these risks would be acting paternalistically. Purdy makes a comparison of other dangerous tasks that people take on, but are not stopped on the grounds of it being unsafe. She says, quote, we do not forbid mountain climbing or riding a motorcycle on these grounds. How could we then forbid a woman to undertake this particular risk? There are risks to everyday life activities, even ones that are classified as necessary, such as brain surgery. But we allow people to make these this decision autonomously for themselves and not place restrictions on their choices simply because of the inherent risk taken on. Lastly, the third portion of Purdy's response is that there is a transfer of burden and risk from one person to another and that those opposing Purdy's claim think that this is wrongful. However, Purdy makes note that this supposed wrongful action is done more often than the than thought. She provides the example that quote, anyone who has their house cleaned, has their hair done, or their clothes dry cleaned, is engaging in this procedure. So is anyone who depends on agriculture or public works such as bridges. Here Purdy is claiming that while pregnancy quote, includes the risk to life and limb, the examples mentioned before entail their own risk such as elevated risk to exposure of toxic chemicals or dangerous machinery. We may not consider these risks to be of equal value at first consideration, but perhaps they both hold their own exposure to risk in just different forms. Purdy does, however, make the concession that, quote, perhaps what is wrong with this kind of transfer is that it necessarily involves exploitation. Such exploitation may take the form of exploitation of women by men, and exploitation of the rich by the poor. And I think this is just something to note that uh, Purdy acknowledges this and recognizes that it needs to be dealt with and does so in her, later in her writing. The second objection that Purdy is faced with is that surrogacy creates the separation of sex and reproduction. Those opposing Purdy make the claim that by making reproduction easier, we might end up with overpopulation and or weakening of the important conception of family life. Purdy responds to this objection by saying, quote, if we face a population problem, it would make sense to rethink overall population policy, not exploit the problems of the infertile. Purdy goes on to mention that the use of contraception is widely permissible and that the use of contraception spares women's health promotes autonomy, strengthens family life, and helps make population growth manageable. Pretty says that if contraception strengthens family life, quote, we might point out that contracted pregnancy will in some cases do the same. Whether or not having children can save a failing marriage it will certainly prevent a man who wants children from leaving a woman incapable of providing them. We may bewail his priorities, but if his wife is sufficiently eager for the relationship to continue, it would be paternalistic for us to forbid surrogacy in such circumstances. That surrogacy reduces rather than promotes women's autonomy may be true under some circumstances, but there are good grounds to thinking that it may also enhance autonomy. This point that Purdy makes acknowledges that one problem, which in this case being overpopulation, should not attempt to be resolved by exploiting those who are unable to have children. If you were to apply this logic to other areas of medicine you could say that those in need of an organ transplant should not be given a new organ to combat the overpopulation problem most people would not agree with this logic in this contents they would say that we should not attempt to solve the problem of overpopulation by exploiting the needs of those in organ failure and purdy points out that there are other means of combating overpopulation and to prevent those who desire children from having them because overpopulation problems is wrongful and exploited. Opposers also argue that separating sex and reproduction weakens family life, and Purdy responds that if you are arguing weakening family life, you could also say that there are already means of doing this, such as the use of contraception, as previously mentioned. The third objection that Purdy is faced with is that surrogacy creates separation of reproduction and child rearing. Opposers claim that there is something special about the bond that gestational mothers have with their children. Purdy responds to these claims by saying that we generally regard mother child attachment as desirable and seemingly essential. However, if this connection is so essential, then why do we accept many varieties of separation, such as sending a child to boarding school, foster parenting, daycare, and many other forms of parent child separation? Purdy also says that in the appropriate circumstances, some of these scenarios are beneficial and desired for both parent and child. The last objection that Purdy is faced with is that surrogacy is the selling of babies. Opposers argue that paid surrogacy is women making available their biological services. They continue to say that that women are paid as little or nothing if they fail to produce a live, healthy child, and argue that if women were truly selling their services, they would be compensated regardless if a child was the outcome or not. However, payment is only typically given when a live, healthy child is born, making the baby an object available for purchase. Pretty responds by saying that, quote, we do not consider children to be property. Therefore, as we cannot sell what we do not own, we cannot be selling babies. There was a lot of information to process so i will sort of bullet point purdy's responses to have a bottom line explanation of her views on surrogacy one surrogacy is a choice not an obligation to participate in and we already engage in practices that transfer burden and risk to others in our everyday lives and surrogacy is no different two Overpopulation is a problem that we should not, that should not be solved by exploiting the infertile, and the weakening of family life is a weak argument because we already engage in practices such as the use of con- contraception. Three, we routinely practice parent-child separation by sending children to boarding school daycare and foster parenting. And lastly, four, surrogacy is not the selling of babies because humans are not property and you cannot sell what you do not own. The second philosopher that we will be discussing is Elizabeth Anderson. Anderson argues that, quote, commercial surrogacy, which is anyone who is paid money to bear a child for other people and to terminate her parental rights so that others may raise the child as exclusively their own, raises new ethical issues since it represents an invasion of the market into a new sphere of conduct, that of specifically women's labor. In this case, Anderson is referring to the labor of carrying a child to term in and pregnancy. Anderson continues to say that when women's labor is treated as a commodity, the women who perform it are degraded furthermore a commercial surrogate degrades children by reducing their status to that of commodities anderson provides three reasons for anti-surrogacy and they are as follows one commercial surrogacy substitutes market norms for the norms of parental love two by substituting market norms we degrade the parent-child relationship and three surrogacy degrades women Anderson states that quote surrogate motherhood is a commercial enterprise based on contracts involving three parties the intended father the the broker and the surrogate mother the intended father agrees to pay a lawyer to find a suitable surrogate mother and make the requisite medical and legal arrangements for the conception and birth of the child and for the transfer of legal custody to himself the surrogate mother agrees to become impregnated with the intended father's sperm to carry the resulting child to term, and to relinquish parental rights to it, transferring custody to the father in return for a fee and medical expenses. Anderson finds that parental love, which she defines as passionate, unconditional commitment to nurture one's child, providing it with the care, affection, and guidance it needs to develop its capacities for maturity. Anderson continues to say that, quote, commercial surrogacy substitute market norms for some of the norms of parental love. Most importantly, it requires us to understand parental rights no longer as trusts, but as things more like property rights, that is, rights of use in disposal over things owned. For in this practice, the natural mother deliberately conceives the child with the intention of giving it up for material advantage. Her renunciation of parental responsibilities is not done for the child's sake, nor for the sake of fulfilling an interest she shares with the child, but typically for her own sake. She and the couple who pay her to give up parental rights over her child does not treat her rights as a kind of property right. They are thereby treat the child itself as a commodity which can be bought and sold. That's a lot of information. But basically, Anderson's point here is another way of defending the argument that surrogacy is a commodity in which property is bought and sold, and the parental love should be natural. And when the surrogacy is used, it is purchased from another who is relinquishing their natural parental love even though most often surrogates participate in full surrogacy, which makes the child not of their own genetics. Anderson also finds that the quote, application of economic norms to the sphere of women's labor violates women's claims to respect consideration, which degrades and exploits the surrogate. We have finally come to the end of all of the information that can be used to distill whether surrogacy is morally acceptable. This is a deeply personal choice, but I wanted to lay out all the information so that you can make an informed decision regarding your opinion on the topic. In the year 2020, there has been an increased need for fertility options aside from natural pregnancy. Some of these options include, but are not limited to, surrogacy, IVF, or in vitro fertilization, among many other options. This increased need is being seen due to women prioritizing careers, amongst other things, or having children around the time it has been done in previous decades. As women's age increases, she may encounter more difficulty becoming pregnant, an increased chance of birth defects, and an increased chance of miscarriage, to name a few. I think that Anderson's claims are somewhat valid, however, Purdy seems to take a more reasonable and relatable stance to the use of surrogacy that more readers will resonate with. Anderson makes claims that are potentially a stretch and one that are a reach for others to agree with as they are not basic and need lots of Explanation to try to understand why she's making these claims Based on the information provided I believe we can answer the question of is surrogacy morally acceptable and confidently say that it is You may disagree But that is why I've given all the information so that your disagreement is one that is based on an educated and informed opinion Thank you for joining me today for this discussion of surrogacy and I look forward to our next discussion. Bye-bye.